Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. It's been another busy week at the Court GC, and I know we're all staying very busy as well. In fact, I'm on the road today, so I appreciate you recording remotely with me for this episode. Uh, But start us off, GC. Were there any interesting orders that came out of the court this week? Well, it was a pretty quiet week on the orders front. There are no new cases, but a few notable denials of certiorari. The court rejected a First Amendment case challenging state statutes banning vague harassment and false claims of political endorsement. The court also rejected a case that could have raised the interesting question of whether unborn children have legal personhood. Oh, that's very interesting. There were two oral arguments we'd like to highlight for you this week, and I'll start things off with Andy Warhol Foundation versus Goldsmith. Yes, this is a case involving that Andy Warhol, the famous artist. Essentially, in this case, the court is being asked to consider almost 35 years after Andy Warhol's passing whether Warhol infringed on the copyright of famed rock and roll photographer Lynn Goldsmith by using a photograph she took of the rock star Prince that appeared in Vanity Fair. Now, Vanity Fair paid a licensing fee to Goldsmith to use the image, but before he died, Warhol created a series of images of Prince from Goldsmith's photograph, but he altered the image in different ways by cropping and coloring it. Needless to say, Warhol did not pay a licensing fee to Goldsmith. Now, here's where it gets interesting, GC. Goldsmith was actually unaware of Warhol's use of her photograph for his artwork, uh, and she didn't find out about it until Vanity Fair published an article shortly after Prince's death in 2016 that actually featured one of Warhol's altered images. Once Goldsmith saw the image, she objected to Warhol's use uh, without paying a licensing fee as infringing on her copyright. And of course, the matter ultimately ended up in court with the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, which owns the copyrights to Warhol's art, arguing that his use of the photograph was sufficiently transformative to constitute fair use, meaning no copyright infringement took place. The district court agreed with the foundation, but the Second Circuit Court of Appeals reversed and agreed with Goldsmith. Of course, the foundation is now asking the Supreme Court to overturn the Second Circuit's decision. There was at least one interesting exchange at oral argument where veteran Supreme Court advocate Lisa Blatt, who represents Goldsmith, referred to a discussion in the Second Circuit's opinion as something the judges on that court were, quote, yakking about. (laughs) Now, I think only Lisa Black could work the term yakking about (laughs) into an oral argument. Uh, But what was really funny, GC, is that Justice Samuel Alito actually picked up on that turn of phrase and later asked her to explain her position on some of that, quote, yakking. Uh, is certainly not an exchange you expect to hear every day at the Supreme Court. Not at all. Zach, there was actually another really interesting moment in that oral argument where Justice Kagan was asking Lisa Blatt about uh, how the Second Circuit applied the test. Um, and Justice Kagan sort of summarized uh, where she seemed to think the Second Circuit made an error. Uh, and Lisa Blatt said, well, that's very insulting to three members of Article 3. 
And you can tell that was a weird line. And then on the audio recording, you can hear Justice Kagan say, like almost, you can almost hear her rolling her eyes, three members of Article 3, just under her breath. It's almost barely audible. But then you hear that unmistakable belly laugh of Justice Thomas going, ha, 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 ha. It's really quite a unique moment. Well, that certainly does roll off the tongue and sounds like uh, something you'd expect someone to chant at a, a Halloween party <laughs> or something like that. Uh, but only Lisa Blatt could, uh, I think, correct, uh, correct. get away with those turns of phrases at OA. Well, next up, uh, somewhat less exciting but very interesting case, National Pork Producers versus Ross. This case is uh, I like to call the bacon case. I'm really trying to get that popularized. Well, I love bacon, so I am all for you calling it the bacon case. All right. Well, hopefully other people do, too, because at this point I'm very invested. This case, California passed a law that made it illegal to sell pork in that state unless the sow that gave birth to the pigs that provided the meat had at least 24 square feet of living space. Now, the effect of this law is to force pork producers all over the country to comply with California's sow-raising standards because although California consumes an enormous amount of pork, something like 13% of the country's pork consumption, it actually produces almost none whatsoever. So the plaintiff here is a trade organization for pork producers, and it alleges that because the market works through middlemen who aggregate pork from many small farmers, the law forces all these small farmers outside of California – to comply with California law even though they don't live or work there. The key to this case is a doctrine called the Dormant Commerce Clause or the Negative Commerce Clause. As you probably know, the Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate interstate commerce and past judicial decisions have held that this creates an implied restriction on states from doing the same thing, the negative or dormant aspect of the Commerce Clause. So the question is, is California impermissibly regulating interstate commerce? It's an especially interesting case because it cuts across most ideological predictions. Originalists tend to be suspicious of the Dormant Commerce Clause, but liberals are no doubt keenly aware that letting California do this here would allow a state like, say, Texas to regulate abortifacients. At oral argument, it seemed like the justices were on the whole very skeptical of what California has done here. Justice Kagan, for example, worried that this would cause what she called balkanizations as the states tried to use regulation to punish each other, either in a tit-for-tat scenario. You could imagine Idaho, which produces a lot of pork, being very mad at California, or in the furtherance of uh, ongoing political ideological fights. You know, this is a very interesting case, GC, and I suspect if there's one case this term that might not split neatly along ideological lines, this very well could be that case. Well, next up, right after this, my interview. Conservative women, conservative feminists. It's true. We do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to politics and policy. Plus, we bring you an exclusive interview with a problematic lawmaker or conservative activist every second and fourth Tuesday of the month. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. And we are also problematic on social media, so be sure to follow us on Instagram. 
We are joined today by Braden Busek, the Director of Litigation at the Southeastern Legal Foundation. Braden, welcome to the show. Thanks. This is a lifelong dream to be on your show, John. <laughs> I'm charmed. So, Braden, um, before we talk about you, tell me a little bit about Southeastern Legal Foundation. What do you guys do and all that? Yeah, Southeastern Legal Foundation is uh, one of the oldest conservative public interest groups. We were um, stood up in the mid-1970s, uh, assisted by our common friend with General Ed Meese, who was uh, on our board of directors until very recently. Um, Southeastern Legal has been uh, involved in um, a variety of um, conservative issues and causes, from property rights to the administrative state, free speech, and now increasingly being pulled into a lot of the stuff that parents are seeing going on um, in public schools. So we're uh, really leading the fight and um, trying to save public schools and reclaim civil liberties and what that means in 2022. Um, so yeah, we've been around for a while. We've been to the Supreme Court. We know how to win them, and we'll probably be bringing a lot more to the Supreme Court in the very near future. Braden, did you always know that you wanted to be in the conservative legal movement? No. Um, in fact, I had a 14-year detour as a criminal prosecutor to get here. Um, so my path was definitely very roundabout. But to be honest, like the only thing I enjoyed about law school was constitutional law and moot court. Um, so it actually makes a lot more sense that I'm where I am now than where I used to be. Uh, but when I graduated law school, I started doing criminal appellate work for the state of Tennessee. And it really was the appeal part of the criminal appellate process that interested me because it was vaguely similar to moot court. And um you did get to dabble in constitutional law issues. So in 2015, when a position opened at the Beacon Center of Tennessee, my wife was the one that was reminding me, being like, this is actually what you always said you wanted to do. Um, but yeah, it was a big, it was a big zag from the, zigzag from the path I was on. How, how was that transition for you? Oh, it's been great. I, I love it. Um, I can't imagine being any other kind of lawyer. Um, I love being part of the conservative public interest space. I don't know... I can't express how grateful I am to just be part of it and to be part of this community of friends. And what made you decide to move from uh, Beacon to Southeastern Legal? Well, you know, um, Kim Herman, the GC, is a friend of mine. We've worked together on a lot of projects for a while. We developed a close friendship, actually, at Heritage. Um, so we've always had a strong collaboration and have done a number of projects together. Uh, in 2020. 2021, when um, the administration turned over, I think we were both very concerned uh, about the likely actions that we were going to see coming out of the executive branch um, in Congress and thought we could be more effective if we uh, tag teams the duo, which I hope we've done. So tell me some of the uh, areas that SLF covers. I mean, you've got parents fighting back against schools, you've got administrative state, you've got religious liberty stuff. Give me an overview of what's going on since you've joined. Sure. I mean, our four pillars are reclaiming civil liberties, protecting free speech, combating government overreach, and securing property rights. We also have a 1A project, too, that um, really focuses on campus speech. But really what we spent most of 2021 and 2022 on has been um, a lot of the battles that are going on trying to save America's public schools. So we represent a teacher in District 65 who was forced to go under uh, mandatory racially segregated um, teacher programming and just endured uh, an entirely noxious and odious um, curriculum um, that was just full of racial stereotyping. We brought that case under Title VI. We also have another case in Missouri where we represent teachers that had to go through um, white privilege anti-racist training um, and that involved them, you know, disclosing their identity, committing to become anti-racist, a whole host of compelled speech, which is, you know, why we had an interest in 303 Creative. Can you tell me a little bit about the, uh, some of this teacher racial segregation and training that we're seeing in schools? Yeah, sure. So um, 
the teacher that we represent, Stacey Demar, uh, she was a drama teacher in District 65, which is a nice suburb outside of Chicago. And uh, she actually was so concerned about what she was seeing with the separation of students and teachers based on race uh, that she actually reported it to the um, Office of Civil Rights Enforcement, the Department of Education. The Department of Education conducted a thorough investigation and actually returned an initial letter of finding telling the school that you would essentially were violating Title VI um, with what was going on here. And uh, it's been reported that the school was uh, entered into, you know, like a, a consent order and was preparing to remediate to it. Um, however, when the administration turned over, the administration withdrew that letter of finding within three days of the inauguration. Wow. Yep. Um, it's the only thing that President Biden withdrew from faster than Afghanistan. Um, anyway, uh, but uh, once that happened, she was kind of on her own and we picked up the case and we've represented her. Okay. And with respect to some of the curricula that are that you know students are being put through in schools can you give us an example of what some of those things are that you're fighting against sure it is just relentless uh, racial stereotyping um it's the quintessential anti-racism agenda uh, comes under the guise of anti-racism or equity but it assigns people different characteristics based on race uh it sorts them into two categories or oppressor or oppressed there are degrees of oppression based on all the other subcategories to race, including religion, whether you're able-bodied, whether you're male, female, or male assigned at birth, female assigned at birth, and so on and so on. Um, they rank you, they categorize you, and then they pit you against one another based on these characteristics. It's deeply divisive. It's deeply destructive. And honestly, in my opinion, one of the greatest accomplishments that America has had from its founding was the concept that to be an American, there is no particular race or ethnicity. I mean, that's mm -hmm. very, very different from the European model. Um, and to renounce that with the Declaration of Independence, to say that all men are created equal, there should not be privilege or favor, was a landmark accomplishment. Now, naturally, we've had to work very, very hard to make the vision of equality a reality in America, and there's still work left to be done. But I just consider it to be downright suicidal for government schools to be fostering and promoting a sense of white identity. I mean, they think they're doing this in the name of addressing racial inequality, but I, you know, I think they should be more concerned that this is going to have potential knock-on effects that they don't anticipate. Is this sort of curricula in public schools at least legal, constitutional? Well, I, you know, in certain cases, I think it can cross the line. So Title VI... Equal protection will prohibit a government school from treating students unequally. Um, and so there are, you know, ways to bring equal protection clause violations if you do have literal separation of students or teachers based on race. Uh, Title VI, however, also applies, applies even more broadly. And Title VI applies um, in a government school when there's been a hostile environment. And what a hostile environment means is still, uh, there's a lot of work to build that out. But certainly um, stereotyping and stigmatizing people based on race is something that is actionable under Title VI. When a curriculum reaches that point, we don't really know. Um, I'd respectfully submit that if you look at what was going on in, um, in a lot of our cases, you'll see that if this doesn't cross the line, then probably nothing does. Uh, and you have put out a handbook to help parents fight back about against this sort of curricula in their schools. Tell me about that. 
Yeah. So in um, early May, we launched a legal guidebook to help parents move from defense to offense in the fight against unconstitutional and illegal woke education, for um, lack of a better word. We, of course, you know, have gotten a tremendous attention and um, heard from a lot of people after we filed our cases in Illinois and Missouri. And we hear a lot from parents and parents who are, in many cases, quite eager to sue. However, you know, we take a very cautious. We think about our cases long and hard, map out a roadmap to victory before we'll file them. And so a lot of the conversations we've had with parents are, you know, you need, they, they say you need to tell us what we need to be looking for. Mm-hmm. Tell us when we really do have rights and remedies. So SLF worked very hard to put together a very short, very readable guidebook. It's, it's intended to be a starting point for parents to know what their rights are. And yes, it addresses Title VI, it addresses equal protection, it also addresses some of the compelled speech things too, but it also addresses a lot of other things like student data privacy, FERPA, PPPRA, these are federal laws that give parents right to access curriculum, they also protect privacy of students in schools, um, and one of the things that we, we've turned our attention to are these deeply invasive personal st- surveys that a lot of students are um, having to undergo in schools where they reveal a great deal of sensitive data, oftentimes to third-party vendors, and nobody knows what is going on with that data. Tell me about these surveys. What are, what's in them? Who's asking for them? Yeah, so um, we've filed a formal uh, request with the Attorney General in the state of Missouri to look into this in a Webster Grove School District, which is a school district in, in, in Missouri. And, you know, what we were seeing was that parents were having children take surveys about their political beliefs, about their sexual behavior and attitudes, um, about their mental well-being and the mental well-being of even their family members. And they were being drilled on this relentlessly, oftentimes without the parents having any awareness of it, and certainly without them affirmatively opting into what this, what these surveys were going to be. And students and parents do have rights under um, PPRA to, uh, to not have this data disseminated. And what's even more troubling is a lot of these surveys are administered by third-party vendors like Panorama Education, um, Wayfinders, another one. And they administer these things through the schools. They hoover up all this data. And that's part of the reason why we've requested investigation is we don't really know what happens to that data. But they're amassing a tremendous database on America's students and their parents. So in addition to these I guess I'll call them, you know, race essentialist curricula and programs in in uh, primary schools. You're also involved in the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard case. Can you tell us about your involvement there? Yeah, I mean, we've got a deep and abiding interest on. Um, all sorts of equal protection issues. Um, we've had equal protection cases go to the Supreme Court prior um, to my involvement and prevail. So we've been long involved in the fight to um, make equality under the law a reality. So actually, let me for, for the uh, audience that doesn't know, can you give us a brief overview of uh, Students for Fair Admissions? Sure. So Students for Fair Admission has been accepted by uh, the Supreme Court. And uh, what it is is a challenge to the admissions policy at both Harvard and UNC, so a private school and a public school. And both of these are universities that are considering race as an admission criteria. And Students for Fair Admission has argued that this has um, led to racial discrimination against Asian American students who work out poorly under uh, the race sorting that these schools use. Neither of these schools use true quota systems, but they have some kind of consideration where race is taken into account. And uh, 
the challenge to UNC is based on equal protection and Title VI, which I referenced earlier, and the one in Harvard is purely based on Title VI, since it's a private school, you can't evoke equal protection. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this is, this is a, a, an area of the law that from its inception, the court was always saying affirmative action is a temporary remedial measure. It has never like blessed this and said that this is a great idea or that this is compatible with the 14th Amendment. It has always kind of said this is something that in narrow cases can pass strict scrutiny. But we don't think we're going to be doing this in 25 years. In fact, the court has said that awfully close to 25 years ago. And just as recently as I think it was six years ago was the, the Fisher case, which went up, and it was a 4-3 you know, opinion, I think. And a lot of the justices who are writing that majority opinion are gone now. So the court's composition has changed a great deal since the last time the court considered um, uh, whether or not affirmative action and the consideration of race and admissions is constitutional. So, you know, um, this is a case that squarely targets another case, Grutter v. Bollinger, which sanctioned the, um, the use of race as an admission criteria. And so it's a direct challenge to it. And, um, you know, we're hopeful the Supreme Court will do the right thing. Gotcha. And what are the implications if the court strikes down these, uh, the use of race in admissions? Oh, it might mean that schools get back to teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic <laughs> instead of 1619 history and, you know, relentless race essentialism, which is just essentially a form of political activism. No, I think it'd be entirely um, healthy. And what happens if the court doesn't? Let's say, you know, you lose this case. Well, I mean, at that point in time, you, you would have to say that if these cases on these facts can't prevail, then there really probably is not going to be a whole lot of legal recourse that parents would have under existing law. So then it's a simple political matter of you need to take back your school boards. You need to pay attention to what's going on in your schools. And, you know, there's room to change the law in a lot of these areas. Like, for instance, you know, the laws surrounding Title VI some of the best parts of it are are only actionable for the Department of Education. And so if the Department of Education doesn't want to pick up and run with it, as it did not appear to want to do in the District 65 case, you just are out of luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could easily make a right of action either under state or federal law that gave people um, the right to come to court and not be dependent on the Department of Education. FERPA and PPRA, which I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of room to tighten that up, give parents more rights, um, give them more rights to disclosure, and give them more rights to, um, to to require the school to affirmatively get opt-in before they administer these surveys rather than just say, oh, we told them and nobody objected kind of stuff. So another case that you have uh, that you're involved in before the Supreme Court is called 303 Creative. Can you give us the overview of that case? We're very excited about that case. This is another government speech case or another free speech case and a compelled speech case. And um, the brief that we filed, our main interest in it is on the speech compulsion point. And it actually intersects with a lot of the things that we are already working on in the teacher free speech case. Um, One of the things that a lot of people don't know is uh, even among the First Amendment, whether or not compelled speech can ever be constitutional. As you know, like the normal rubric under a First Amendment claim is whether or not it can surmount strict scrutiny. But there's actually an open question about whether there's even a strict scrutiny analysis when it comes to compelled speech. So in this case, what is the compelled speech? 
Yeah, so the compelled speech would be forcing, um, in this case, a creative artist to have to produce a product that conflicts with their religious convictions. Uh, and what's your, uh, what is your amicus brief, and how is it different than the merits briefs? Oh, uh, the, the amicus brief is um, we're coming in firmly on the side with Mountain States Legal of saying that compelled speech is never unconstitutional. It is a per se constitutional violation. It doesn't matter if the government has a compelling interest. It doesn't matter if it's narrowly tailored. The government never has a compelling interest in telling an American citizen they must speak and say something that conflicts with their views. Is there a Supreme Court case law uh, currently in existence that, that does permit some compelled speech? Um, so uh, it, it's, it's no, not really. Um, it, it, this is not a body of law that the Supreme Court has really, really built out with great depth. Um, but every major case where the Supreme Court considers compelled speech, the court just kind of wipes it away. Mm-hmm. Um, people have pointed a little bit of loose language in one or two of these cases that they say sort of implies that maybe it's there. But really, that's just the court kind of getting to the result of... Th- even if there was this, it still wouldn't work. But the better way to read those cases, we think, is just to say that the court says you can't make somebody say something they don't want to say, which I think most people agree with. So besides all the cases we've talked about, are there any other of SLF's cases that we should keep an eye on? Sure. I'll tell you one to definitely keep an eye on. We just got oral arguments set in our challenge to Metro National Sidewalk Law. This is a very important case for property rights litigators. Um, and there's a series of cases from the Supreme Court that say when property owners want to get a permit to develop their property, the government can't make demands that they pay them money to address unrelated public problems. So look, you want to create a high rise, the government can say you got to build adequate parking space. But we have two clients that just wanted to build new homes under existing zoning. And the government said, okay, you've got to build a sidewalk or give us a bunch of money where we can build a sidewalk elsewhere. And what's particularly absurd about it is neither of these people's properties had existing sidewalks or connect to sidewalks anywhere around them. So this city was literally telling them, you need to build a sidewalk to nowhere. (laughs) And what, of course, they really wanted was just a bunch of money. Mm. And so one of our clients gave a bunch of money, and the the city built a sidewalk, you know, like three miles away from his house that he can never use. And he still doesn't have a sidewalk on his property. The other client just flatly refused. He said, uh, in fact, the, the city had told him, if you build this sidewalk, you're going to create flooding issues for your friends because where the sidewalk goes is where the water currently is diverted to. So the city was on the one hand making him do it and also telling him it would create a massive public problem if he did do it. And when he went in front of the Board of Zoning Authority and said, I don't think this is constitutional for you guys to make me do this in any event, but here it's particularly absurd, they told him, we've got a compromise solution for you. You can just give us a bunch of money. Um, so he refused to comply. Um, we represent both of those homeowners. We lost in front of the district court, but the district court made a very interesting finding. She just said, I don't think that there's any binding law in the Sixth Circuit. There's some law in the Ninth Circuit that goes the other way. I'm going to choose what the Ninth Circuit says, but if I'm wrong, your clients would win. She went ahead and said, like, if the Constitution applied in this context, you guys would win. Interesting. Um, and it's a great example of uh, strategic litigation because uh, our friends at TPPF had brought a challenge to a tree ordinance in Michigan 
which is also in the Sixth Circuit, they won that case. They won the case with the Sixth Circuit saying, okay, but there's this open legal question as to whether or not this is going to apply to laws and not just some administrator attaching this kind of Mm willy-nilly. That's, of course, the argument that Metro Legal has latched onto. But right on the heels of the Sixth Circuit delivering that victory to, to TPPF, SLF has their case with that issue right in the crosshairs. So um, they're going to get that question. They, nice. yeah, the Sixth Circuit said that's an interesting question that we'll save for another day. So we're like, today is that day. <laughs> well, Brayden, it's been great to have you on the show. Uh, one final question for you. If you could go back in time and talk to any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, uh, who would it be and what would you talk about? Justice Story, and I would want to talk to him about the Amistad decision. Interesting. Oh, get, for the audience that doesn't know, tell us about the Amistad decision and why it's interesting to you. Well, um, I, I, the reason why the Amistad – so the Amistad decision, for people that don't know or have never seen the movie, involved um, an African slave ship where uh, the Africans who were being illegally imported um, took over the ship and, uh, and you know, essentially committed a mutiny, but they were being unlawfully abducted anyway. So it actually came to the court on this weird salvage – theory. Um, and they were, you know, I think the Spanish government, I think is what it was, was trying to claim that, you know, these were all property, but it really had the underlying issue of whether or not these are people Mm -hmm. involved in it. This is a decision long before Dred Scott. And I think that the the American law school curriculum should teach this in contradistinction to Dred Scott because Justice Story's analysis, which found in favor of the African who had been abducted was essentially like, look, like, they were illegally taken. That means they've got a natural right to self-defense. That's what they did here. So you can't call them kidnappers. You can't call them mutineers. You can't execute them. You certainly can't call them property. So you have this remarkable result where the United States Supreme Court, long before Dred Scott, was using natural rights theory to promote a theory of equality that is faithful to the vision of the Declaration of Independence. And I think if you taught Dred Scott right next to it, you would see that really you've got competing theories of rights here and where they come from. And it's actually the older, call it more conservative, vision that reached the right result. Fascinating. Well, Brayden, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, GC, the Warhol case kindled my artistic instinct, uh, stick figures and all. <laughs> so I thought today I would quiz you about art and the court. Are you ready? I am absolutely ready. This is my first hot seat trivia moment this term. I am very excited. Well, GC, you seem like a far more cultured uh, individual than I am, so I figured you have a better chance of getting some of these art-related questions right uh, than I would. (laughs) I think I'm just better at cultivating a false image of myself. Well, whatever you're doing, it's working, so uh, so let's see how (laughs) it holds up here. All right. We'll start with a recent case. Now, this case is very interesting. It involved photographs of Blackbeard's ship Queen Anne's Revenge. Frederick Allen had long been photographing and documenting the wreckage of this ship, and he registered a lot of his work and photographs with the U.S. Copyright Office. One enterprising state, though, in an act Blackbeard himself would have been proud of, posted Allen's work on their own website and then passed something dubbed Blackbeard's Law, which purported to convert all of Allen's work into public record. Now, Allen didn't appreciate this, and he later sued this state, but the Supreme Court unanimously decided that Congress lacks the authority to abrogate a state's sovereign immunity in copyright suits. So here's my question to you, GC. 
Which state committed this copyright piracy, according to Allen? Well, I know the answer to this. The reason is, I, you know, I don't usually – copyright is not really that gripping to me. But this involved Blackbeard and pirates. So <laughs> I remember this case. And the answer is North Carolina. Yep, that's absolutely right. And it was a fascinating case in a lot of ways. And certainly if, uh, if you haven't had a chance to go check out uh, Frederick Allen's photographs of Queen Anne's Revenge and Blackbeard's ship, uh, they're absolutely fascinating. So I'd encourage everyone to, to go do that. Well, very good, GC. You're off to a great start, a one-for-one one so far. <laughs> All right, next up, we'll talk about another recent case. Which case involved a lawsuit against Germany uh, that was brought by the descendants of several Jewish art dealers who argued that the Nazi regime forced their relatives to sell rare medieval Christian relics, which now reside in a state-run museum in Berlin, at ridiculously low prices? Now, I'll give you a, I'll give you a hint, GC, because this is a tough one. Uh, ultimately, the justices agreed with Germany that the lawsuit brought by these descendants does not fall within an exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, which generally bars lawsuits against foreign governments in U.S. courts. So what is this case, GC? So this is Federal Republic of Germany versus Philip, and I, I know this answer for a very unusual reason, and that is that the judge that I clerked for uh, was descended uh, on one side of her family from uh, German Jews who at one point in time owned, if a memory serves, a railroad or oh. interest in a railroad in Germany, which was confiscated. She actually sued uh, on behalf of her family's interest but uh, lost – I, I believe because her claims were time barred under whatever uh, tribunal was set up to administer those kind of claims. But in the course of my research on the judge before I took the clerkship, I went down this rabbit hole. So Federal Republic of Germany versus Philip is the uh, short answer. GC, you are two for two today. You are on fire. <laughs> and that's a, a fascinating story about your judge. Now, I will note also it's interesting because there was a companion case uh, to the Federal Republic of Germany case that also involved descendants of Jewish art dealers who had claims against the government of Hungary. But of course, because of the Supreme Court's decision in this Federal Republic of Germany case, the Hungary case had to be remanded back to lower federal courts to be decided in light of the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, but excellent, excellent job, GC. All right, I'm going to have to ratchet up the difficulty just a little bit here. Somehow I suspected you were going—you seemed just slightly too happy about my performance. I can't let you put on too many airs as a man of fine culture, <laughs> uh, although you are, you are, but I have to make it a little tough for you here. All right, so here's my next question for you. In the 1884 case, we're going way back here, GC, yeah. uh, of the, in the 1884 case of Burrow Giles Lithographic Company versus Sarony, the court upheld Congress's expansion of copyright protection to photographs. Now, here's my question for you. A photograph of what famous Irish poet and playwright was at the center of this case? Well, you didn't lie, Zach. I don't know. Could you give me a hint, though? Well, he's Irish. Very well known, uh, <laughs> a poet, playwright. I'll give you a hint. He had his own legal troubles uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. In fact, he was criminally prosecuted uh, for his sexuality and some other issues surrounding that and actually spent several years uh, imprisoned as a result of those legal troubles. Does that, oh. uh, that give you any hints there? 
Well, maybe Oscar Wilde? Yep, that's exactly it. Yes. Well, GC, I will tell you what. I thought I might stump you on that one, uh, but I did well, not. As originally phrased, you did have me stumped, in fairness. <laughs> well, I'll give you credit for it, GC, because with uh, just a little hint, you came through and you got it right. So well done. All right. My final question today, I think this one may stump you, uh, and it's tough. It is tough. But in what year did the Supreme Court decide that advertisements could be protected by copyright? Oh, the year questions are tough. I, I don't, I wouldn't, uh, I'll I wouldn't you, know. I'll tell you what, we'll make it easier, GC. Okay. Are you thinking 19th century, 20th century, uh, 18th century? What are you thinking in terms of generally where it falls? Well, I assume it's probably pretty old. Advertisements have been around for a very long time, as has the desire to claim one's right in one's creative property. I'm going to go old, maybe 1800s. It was a good guess. It was a good guess. And you're not far off. It was the early 20th century. It was 1903, actually, was hmm. the year. Uh, and Justice Holmes wrote an opinion in a case called Blystein versus Donaldson Lithographing Company. Now, the facts of this case were interesting. It involved a traveling circus called the Great Wallace Show, which commissioned a number of distinctive posters advertising the circus. Now, when the circus, the Great Wallace Show, ran out of posters, it hired a competitor of the original manufacturer to produce more. Well, needless to say, the original manufacturer did not appreciate that and sued the competitor for copyright infringement. And Justice Holmes, in an opinion, said that the original competitor's work could indeed be protected by copyright, even though it was commercial speech and an advertisement. Uh, so overall, GC, well done today for art-related uh, Supreme Court trivia. That last one, Zach, is especially fascinating. We're going to have to talk about how you found it. I, I couldn't even imagine. <laughs> there are actually several very interesting websites dedicated uh, to art law, uh, art-related hmm. cases that have come before the Supreme Court. And so if anyone's interesting, do a little digging, and you can certainly find a lot of very interesting cases related to some very famous uh, artistic pieces. Well, GC, well done. And thank you to everyone for listening. That's all we have for today. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star review. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.